You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. So here's the question. Um, How would your life be different, your inner life and your outer life, how would your life be different if you knew that you could rest knowing unequivocally, unquestionably, beyond any ability to change his mind, how would your life look differently if you could rest knowing that you are unconditionally loved by God? If you could really rest in that. I really believe that that's one of the great questions of the Christian life, and I think so few of us really know what that means. The security of that rest eludes so many of us. We hide who we are, trying to earn the respect and the kindness of others. We run in shame from things that we are afraid would be exposed. We shame ourselves for whatever perfect standards we don't live up to. We flit from passing pleasure to passing pleasure. And when none of those things deliver, we're on to the next thing, a little more jaded, a little less hopeful, a little more cynical. How would your life look different if you could rest knowing that you are unconditionally loved by God? Think about that. Thanks, Brummy, for that, that wonderful spoken word. Uh, if you ever wondered how you know if you're like in at a church, it's not if, you, not if you've gone through membership class or whatever. Like if you call him Matt Brumfield, like no. You know you're here at the chapel if he's Brummy. That's Brummy. So Brummy, thank you for your, your candor, your courage, your creativity, your vulnerability. That wonderful declaration of the sufficiency of a cross. When you think about the cross, um, Go back there in your imagination for a minute, and some questions may come to your mind. Like, really try and picture it. The back that bore the whip, the head that held this crown of thorns that was pressed in there, and this body that hung nearly naked in front of everybody. Questions kind of come up when you really picture it. Like, was all of this really necessary? Why did this have to happen? What was going on here? Like, Why did he have to die this way, this time? Why did this person, this man, who didn't have to die, why did he die? What was this all about? There seems like there's something going on that just at first glance we can't quite catch. Why all the violence, the mocking, the abuse? We have a suffering, dying Jesus. We have a crowd in the background that seems strangely passive and a God who turns his back. What's going on? So all those questions are wrapped up into what theologians call the doctrine of the atonement, which is where we're going to be this morning. Answering this question, why did Jesus have to die on a cross? And so we've got a lot of ground to cover. We're just going to jump right in. We're going to ask this first question, what does this doctrine even mean? The doctrine of the atonement. Why did he have to die on a cross? What's this mean? And for this, I want to drop us into the middle of a letter called Romans. And so if you've got your Bible, you can turn there. Romans chapter 3. We'll get there in just a second. You can scroll there on your phone. It'll be on the screens behind me. 
Romans was written by the Apostle Paul. Paul was this former church persecutor. He hated Christians and killed them. And then he has this life-changing encounter with the risen Christ. And then Paul stops, he cannot stop preaching about Jesus and how amazing he is and how much better he is than anything else. Paul becomes obsessed with this idea that Jesus can change anybody, anywhere, anytime, no matter who you are, where you're from, what you've done, no matter how dark your past or jacked up your present. <laughs> and so everywhere Paul goes, people give their lives to this Jesus. And they say, gosh, Paul, I don't... I don't know what you have, but I want that. I don't get all the complexity, but clearly this Jesus has changed you, and I want that. And soon, like a, like a wave behind a speedboat, and there's these churches that start sprouting up everywhere, these small but devoted followers of Christ in these towns across the empire. And Paul, caring for these churches, he writes letters back to them. It's a lot of the New Testament. One of the thickest letters... And densest is the letter to the Romans. It's the most lawyer-ish. Paul was a lawyer by vocation. He trained with the best legal minds of his day. And all through his ministry, God uses Paul's gifts, these phenomenal like mental and logical persuasive powers, to help churches understand who Jesus is and why he's so important. And Romans is lawyer Paul at his best. If you've never read it, it's like, Dense. It's like war and peace and anatomy textbook and like the Federalist Papers all rolled into one, right? This legal textbook. It's beautiful. And so we're going to drop into Romans chapter 3. I want to invite you to look in verse 21. Romans 3, verse 21. But now, stop. <laughs> you ever feel like Paul's in the middle of a thought, right? Like we're jumping on the middle of a train that's already in motion, because we are. The first half of Romans 3 is this one long building thought basically says that man by nature is a mess. <laughs> Here's what he says. Just listen to this. This is a couple of verses above in Romans 3. He starts in verse 10. He says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Sheesh bad day. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Pretty vivid imagery, isn't it? That's us. That's what he's describing. My mouth is an open grave, the poison of asps. Ugh. Yikes. And you want to argue with that. I know it. But let me ask you a question. Is mankind basically good? Is the world getting better or is it getting worse? Are people naturally selfless or selfish? Left to our own, according to God's word, we are a mess. Paul's naming something that we all kind of feel but really don't want to acknowledge. And Paul is starting to build his case in verse 21 here that, one, we have a sin problem. It's deep in there. You can't get away from it. Number two, I can't fix that sin problem on my own. I can't keep any of God's rules, let alone all of them. And number three, I need righteousness from somewhere else, from someone else. 
Hold on to that for a few seconds. So with all that, all that hanging in the air, he's about to build his legal case. Here we go. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested, or shown, manifested, it's like revealed, shown, brought forward, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. It's important to see what, what's happening here. Paul's looking at everything in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. This law that God, through Moses, brought to his people. And Paul's saying that there is something that is here that is better than that. Now, that is a massive statement for somebody who's ethnically and religiously Jewish to make. To say that something has arrived, someone has come that is better than all of that. God's righteousness is available and everything in the law and the Old, Old Testament, everything in the law and the prophets point to it. And here's the kicker. What's he say? It's available, how? Through faith in Christ Jesus. For who? For all who believe. The law could never give me righteousness. You've got to understand this. The law could never give me righteousness. It can't make me free. It can't change my heart. But the gospel can. Now that is a massive statement. There's this little quippy two-line poem that John Bunyan, who's the author of Pilgrim's Progress, wrote, and I love it. It says like this, run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands, <laughs> but better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly, and gives me wings. Sounds great, Paul. Well, who's this for? Who gets this? So before Paul shares the great news, he shares the depth of the bad news. Here's, here's where we go, verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's every one of us. Sorry, no matter how good you look on the outside, you're jacked up. Sorry. Bad news first. But then he continues. For all sin fall short of the glory of God and are justified, how? By his grace, what's that like? As a gift, how does that happen? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, hmm, as a propitiation. It's a great big theological word. I'll bet you've never said that word, propitiation. What's it mean? If you want to work this into lunchtime conversation today, it's a little challenge for you, sitting down. What does this mean? What's he talking about here? We need to slow down here. There's a lot going on. First off, he says that we are justified. That's this great big legal word, a declaration of innocence, acquittal. You're off the hook. The penalty of all that sin that haunts me deep down in there. Shameful feelings, hurtful feelings, lost feelings, selfish feelings, fearful feelings. All of that can be canceled. How, Paul says, by his grace, which is like a gift. What is that? It's not by what I do. Not by my good behavior. Not by me being awesome. Because according to everything he's just said, I'm anything but awesome. Grace, God's unmerited favor, is just because he loves you. And there's nothing you can do to change that. That's why Paul says a gift. 
And this shows up through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Did you catch that? Hold up. So Jesus did something that allowed God the Father to justify me, to call me free, to acquit me of my sin and my guilt. And that's where he jumps in in verse 25. God put forward as a propitiation. Here's what propitiation means. Big theological word. Propitiation means the turning away of God's wrath. We don't like to think about that, do we? The turning away of God's wrath. So this Jesus, God the Son, somehow turned the wrath of God away from me. How? By his blood. Icky. It's kind of gross. What's he alluding to? This is a direct reference to the cross. Jesus bled, and this is a little gross, but because he bled willingly, freely, obediently, gave up his blood, the sign of a living person, Jesus' blood was offered freely, and so God's wrath was turned away from me and on to him. That is a huge statement. By offering that life, Jesus absorbed my sin, took the place, standing in, as it were, for anyone who would believe. Now, why would God do that? What would motivate God the Father to send God the Son for messed up sinners like us? And here's where we arrive at the crux of the question we asked a few moments ago. Why does all this even have to happen? And where Paul beautifully leads to what theologians call the doctrine of the atonement. Verse 26. It, that is the cross, the blood, what happened there. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Holy smokes. Here's what this means. Here's what this means. The Father's heart in the crucifixion of the Son, where Jesus poured out his blood, was to show that he is just, having his wrath satisfied, but then also to show that he is the justifier, having his just because I love you grace. Both of those things on full display for anyone who will believe. Don't miss this, that last phrase. Take a look at it again. Last phrase in verse 26. Who gets this? Is this just everybody gets in? He's got to be good? No. The one who has faith in Jesus. Now, what does that even mean? Jesus offers himself as an offering for you, and he says, yes, you've got a sin problem. No, you can't fix it, but I can. Not counting on my good behavior, not counting on a rosary, not counting on my good intentions. And so the only question that emerges now like a light through a theological fog is, where are you? Are you that? Have you placed your faith in him? Are you that one that he's talking about here? Where are you? personally, on this. Another way of asking this is, in light of the fact that you have a sin problem, in light of the fact that we can't fix it on our own, what are we counting on 
for righteousness before God. Here are your options. Number one, you can trust yourself to be good enough. Or, number two, you can trust somebody else to be good enough for you. So standing before God, one day, whenever it comes, whose lifelong record of obedience are you going to trust? Mine or Jesus's? I'll give you my answer. I'm with him. I know myself way too well to trust myself on that day. So if you have to define the doctrine of the atonement, here's what this means. Theologian and scholar Wayne Grudem says it really succinctly. If you're taking notes, I'll say it slowly. The atonement is the work Jesus did in his life and in his death to earn my salvation. The work that Jesus did in his life and in his death to earn my salvation. Now all this sounds heady and academic and great. However... Second question that we've got to ask is, why is this even significant? Why does this even matter? Why bother? We explained the cross, made it a little bit more palatable to our imagination, but why is this significant? I want to give you three reasons. Reason number one, the doctrine of the atonement shows us that salvation is from God. Salvation is from God. Here's the question. Why did God send the Son? What motivated him? What drove him? Was it wrath? Or was it love? You ever wonder that? I have. Are we sinners in the hands of an angry God? Or are we in the sinners in the hands of a loving God? Which is it? To get a handle on that, we need to back up. Here's the situation. Some of you know this. Act one, creation. We are created to be with God in unbroken relationship. Things weren't messed up yet. I like to think about it like a camping trip with no mosquitoes or like dandelions not in my front yard. That would feel like perfect creation right about now. But we can't imagine what that was like. Creation was perfect. But even deeper than that, there was no barrier between God and man. No shame, no embarrassment, no guilt, no shame because I didn't do anything wrong yet. There was nothing wrong. Nothing to hide from because there was nothing to hide. Act two. Some of you know this one. This is the fall. The fall. Here's how this one goes. Adam and Eve, don't eat the fruit. Gotcha. That's my six-word summation of human rebellion. Don't eat the fruit. Gotcha. Chomp. That's how sin entered our world and into us. One literal authority-defying act that basically said, thanks for the garden, however... For our lives down here, we'll be leaving these lives on our terms. We'll be making the decisions from now on. And at its core, pun absolutely intended, that's what sin is. Some of you got that. Well done. That's what sin is. It is devaluing God's authority over my life and elevating my authority over my life to the point of flat-out rebellion and disobedience. And we love not anything but my sin keeps me from God 
God's holiness and my sin don't go together. It's oil and water, darkness and light. Pittsburgh Steelers fans and human intelligence. Still with me. But seriously, here's the problem. Sin isn't just what I do. Sinful is who I am. like to think about like we're John's 316 people for God so what love the world like let's just hang there why do we have to have this God of wrath but here's the thing I want you to see God's wrath and God's love are not opposite attributes for him in our minds they are not for him it's not like these are competing attributes that stir up some inner conflict in the God of the universe I want to read three scriptures to you they're going to show up on the screen here's what I want you to listen for I want you to listen for two things. God's overwhelming love for you and then his decision to turn his son. Here's the first one. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake. Those three words. For our sake. have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We're like, yeah, I feel that one. And the Lord has laid on him are basically saying the same thing, and here it is. There is something in the sovereign design of God the Father that willed the death of the Son. It's really hard to think about. But what this means is the cross ultimately was not the decision of Pontius Pilate. Jesus wasn't ultimately put on the cross because a Roman soldier nailed him to it. It wasn't because Judas betrayed him or a bunch of religious snobs overpowered him. He's the king of the universe. Nobody overpowers Jesus. On the cross, Jesus didn't lose his life. He gave his life. But honestly, like, sit for a minute. How do those three scriptures hit you? Like, let your... He made him to be sin. He laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the will of the Lord to crush... Kind of makes you wince a little bit, doesn't it? does me. Here's what I want us to see, though. God's wrath required something of us, and then his love provided that to us. Let that sink in. No other God does that. Lots of gods demand sacrifices for the sins of their people. Lots of gods ask you to contribute, do good work, jump through the
He's the judge who simultaneously pronounces the sentence, announces our acquittal, and puts the cuffs on himself. This is just the good news of the gospel, that everything God asks of us, he provides to us. This is the wrath, love, justice, and graciousness of God in one big, giant theological blender. I seem to be in a hymn-quoting mood these days, and so here's one that I love. This came out of the, uh, the Great Welsh Revival in the late 1800s. Fountains opened deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. So are we sinners in the hands of an angry God or sinners in the hands of a loving God? Answer, yes. You can't enjoy the wonder of the cross apart from understanding the profound wrath of God. So that's the first reason why the atonement is significant. It shows us that salvation is from God. Reason number two. The doctrine of the atonement reminds us of our real home. Here's what I mean by this. I want to tell you a story about Lena. When I was 21, um, I was still a student in college. Uh, I cared for residents at a nursing home on the north side of Chicago. And... Um, no offense to all you guys, you know I love you a lot. I can't imagine a sweeter ministry. Um, it was just incredible. So every Sunday afternoon, uh, I led four other students. We'd pack an electric keyboard in the back of my white 94 Honda Civic. Right, cram ourselves in there. We'd head up to the north side of Chicago, and uh, we'd meet with residents for the afternoon. We'd spend time. We'd do a church service for them. We'd sing some songs, and it was just this amazing time, and um, still one of the most beautiful seasons that in, in ministry I've, I've, I could ever imagine having. But all the stuff that we did, the sweetest thing was, um, was visiting the residents after like, church was over. And we kind of go room to room. And I remember Lena. Lena. Lena was 80 years old plus. She weighed about 80 pounds. She was bedridden. Lena had to be turned on her side every once in a while to avoid bed sores. She had this thin, like white hair that like weightlessly just like drifted across her forehead. No teeth, no dentures, delicate glasses, wide smile, deep eye crinkles. This is Lena. And the second my foot crossed her linoleum tiled doorway, she would turn and she would smile and she'd go, oh good, you guys are here. And still hear her voice in my head. Let's sing. So I'd walk over to her, I'd stand by her bed, I'd hold the plastic bed rail, and the same thing every week. She'd grab my hand, she'd start swinging it, like this private musical game of Red Rover. Okay? And then she'd sing, same song every week. This world is not my home, I'm just passing through. You know this song. My home is up in glory, somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, so I can't feel at home in this world anymore. And then every week, she'd squeeze my hand, again, at the end of the song, which, thinking back on it, she had surprising strength. And then she'd let my hand go, and then she'd go, well, see you next week. And that was it. Now, here's why I tell that story. If you find yourself tired of this world, if you are frustrated, if you are angry, if you are weary, if some days the world just drains you, 
That's because you were meant for another one. And I feel like the most helpful service I can provide for you as a pastor is to alert you to the passing nature of this world, point you to the reality of a better one and tell you how to get there. That restlessness that you feel, that quasi-disillusionment in your soul, that sense of not really being at home, that's the echo of eternity that God has put inside of you, subtly, quietly, delicately reverberating, inviting you, reminding you that you were made for something more. Paul put it like this to the Philippians. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a what? A savior. If you don't have sins, you don't need a savior, and if you don't have a savior, you can't have eternity. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Every time I hit that verse, I think of Lena. The Philippians were obsessed with citizenship, being a fully accredited Roman citizen meant status, power, wealth, right? You could travel easier in the Roman world. And here's Paul writing to his Roman audience in Philippi, many of whom had served as soldiers because Philippi was a garrison town, deeply proud of their Romanness and saying, guys, as good as you think this is, there's something better. So for us, let me ask you, how is it that we are homesick for a place that we have not yet been. Because this world is not our home and we were meant for more. How is it that despite the world's beauty, we're still left surprisingly empty? Because this world is not our home, we were meant for more. Do you know why we get tired, overwhelmed, hang our heads and sigh? Because this world is not our home. We were meant for more. Do you know why your body gives out, literally aching to be transformed? Because this world is not our home. You were meant for more. That's all Paul is saying. For those who recognize the atoning work of Christ, those who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone, our citizenship, our real mailing address, our legal status, positionally, if not yet practically, is there with him. Guys, we're already there. This is Paul bringing out his big apostolic highlighter and reminding us of the words of Jesus in John 14 that says this, don't let your hearts be troubled. Jesus says, believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. How beautiful is that? Here's the insight. You can only enjoy the beauty of the world when you stop expecting the world to give you something that only Jesus can. This world is absolutely beautiful, but it's just an appetizer. Just a foretaste, a prelude, an invitation. All the beauty of the world was not meant to satisfy your appetite, only to awaken it. Sunrises are absolutely beautiful, but not because they're light rays being diffused through water vapor. Sunrises are absolutely beautiful because they are personal inv invitations from a God who loves you. And we're going to move on, but before we do, I've got to be clear. Please, please hear me on this. 
until Jesus is your Savior, this world is all you have. And that's heartbreaking because that's most people. Most people just see light rays through vapor when there's a God behind all of it that they don't know yet. So trying to echo Paul, here's the most succinct way I can put it. If Jesus isn't your Savior, heaven isn't your home. But if you know him, you're as good as there. Which leads me to reason number three. Reason number three, why the atonement is so important. The atonement shows us that salvation is available to anyone. And I want to take us back to where we started this morning, the scene at the cross. Matthew tells us that there were thieves crucified on either side of Jesus, whose names and crimes are lost to history. Initially, Matthew tells us that they both join in on the mocking of Jesus. But then, one of them has a shift in his heart. Luke tells the scene from that angle. Here's, here's Luke. One of the criminals who were hanged rallied at him, or railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our sins. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Two criminals, one on either side. Which one are you? Let me ask you a really basic question. It's worth musing on for a few moments. What does it mean to be a Christian? (laughs) What does it mean to be a Christian? Like to go to church, to do the right things, to avoid the wrong things, to give your money, to light a candle, to pay a tithe, to pray a prayer? No, none of those things are, are good behavior. They're just good behavior. None of those things save you. Because if good behavior is what saves you, then the cross was just a waste of wood. What Luke gives us just minutes before Jesus exhales his last breath is the irreducible crux of saving faith brought forward into sharp relief. Think about the thief. What does he know? Does he have the answers to all of life's complex theological questions? No. Did he have a track record of a really spiritual life? Nope. How about a reputation of being a really, really good guy? Not even close. Far from it. Here's what he knew. He knows he has a sin problem. To the other thief, he says, look, we deserve what's coming to us. Second thing, he knows that Jesus doesn't have a sin problem, and that he's paying a price for something he doesn't deserve. He says, this man has done nothing wrong. And then lastly, what's he say? He knows Jesus as king. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Please remember me, king. It's a pretty basic Christology, isn't it? And in response to all that, Jesus says, truly, which is like saying, without a doubt, I promise, you can count on it, I tell you, Broken thief, guilty thief, shameful thief, thief who knows his sin, who lives in shame, thief who runs in fear. I tell you, today, because let's face it, thief, we know how this is going to end. Nobody comes on off of a cross alive. Nobody lives through this, thief. 
But I tell you today, you will be with me, which had to sound absolutely unbelievable. Where? In paradise, which is the opposite of everything he's going through right then in that moment. So let's translate that into our world. Update that from then to 2022. And I want to put this to you in three questions, and then we'll close in just a moment. Have you confessed that you have a sin problem? Like, not my life is not as it should be, or I've made some mistakes, or not like, yeah, well, no, no, no. But I did it. I've broken God's law, and I deserve eternity apart from him. Have you ever said that to him? Two, have you accepted Christ as a complete, all-atoning sacrifice for those sins? Have you said, Jesus, you're enough. I'm not counting on anything else but you. Just need Jesus. And then lastly, have you committed your life to follow him? Is he your king? Does he own you? It would be strange to say, hey, Jesus, thanks for getting me out of hell. Appreciate you, buddy. That's great. Thanks for giving your life for me so freely. Looking forward to heaven. It's going to be wonderful. But for my time down here, I'm in the driver's seat. So that forgiveness thing, appreciate you, Jesus. I'm not loving my neighbor. That's too hard. Those people, they're not my kind of people, Jesus. I'm glad that I've got you and you and I are good, but I'll see you at the pearly gates. Wouldn't that be ludicrous? It would be laughable and it would be insulting. The cross permanently restores what I completely broke and it's worth more than just my casual thanks. Here's my point. If the cross just gets me out of hell, then Jesus is reduced to a self-centered product. But if the cross restores a relationship, then Jesus is elevated to an all-sufficient Savior. So we're going to sing in a minute. But here's the thing. You, you must have a response to this, Jesus. And here are your options. You can respond by asking for forgiveness, maybe for the first time today. Or you can respond by worshiping the Savior that you already know. In the first, you are responding to a Savior who is drawing you, if only to be known by you. Jesus may be a stranger to you this morning, but because of the cross, he doesn't have to stay that way. The first prayer that God hears of a heart-turned sinner is, Lord, forgive me. I'm wrong. Or if you want a simpler version, please, 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 thank you, thank you, thank you. And the second... You respond in worship to your Lord. This is the God who, because of the cross, calls you his friend. What a marvelous truth. How would your life be different if you could rest knowing that you are unconditionally loved by God? Let me pray. Lord, we do say thank you that you are our only hope. We say thank you that we have nothing else but you, Lord, that we are so aware of our own sin. Even when we don't see it clearly, Lord, we know that it's lurking there beneath the surface. And so we say thank you for what you've done for us. We say thank you for sending your son to die a horrible death on a cross that should have been ours to pay a penalty that we deserved. And you've gotten us hell canceled and heaven guaranteed. And Lord, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, let today be the day where we cross from death to life, from hopelessness to hopefulness. Father, we love you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, 
please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.